O'Hare Airport just outside of Chicago is the fifth busiest airport in the world. 2,049 flights take off and land per day. It's named after Butch O'Hare. Butch O'Hare's father was actually the lawyer for Al Capone and turned state's evidence against Al Capone and was a significant part of the case against him when they tried and convicted Al Capone of tax evasion. His lawyer, Edward O'Hare, provided a lot of the background and a lot of the information. Seven years later, Edward Capone was gunned down in the streets of Chicago, most probably by Al Capone henchmen. A year before his son, Butch O'Hare would become lieutenant in the Navy and a fighter pilot, and Butch O'Hare would become famous in his own right for what was probably certainly one of the most daring and heroic missions in World War II. His carrier was under attack, and Butch O'Hare went up by himself single-handedly and disabled or shot down nine Japanese fighters. He became such a hero that he was something of a celebrity and the Navy brought him stateside and for almost a year used him to travel around America and kind of sell the war effort and also recruit. During that year, Butch grew increasingly uncomfortable knowing that the men that he had worked alongside and the men that he had commanded were still flying combat missions, so Butch asked permission to go back to the Pacific. He was sent back to the Pacific, and uh, in November of 1943, he led the Navy's first ever nighttime flight attack launched from an aircraft carrier. But in that attack, Butch was shot down over the Pacific and killed. So, you know, we honor people like Butch this weekend, and those of you. There are a handful of you, at least, who have served in some capacity in the military services in our country. So if you have served in some capacity, would you stand? If you'd all stand with me and let's pray. Father, we're so thankful and this kind of occasion at least it does a little to remind us of how much we have to be thankful for. We're thankful for this place. We're thankful for freedoms. We're thankful for those who have served to make that possible. Lord, we're thankful for our families. We're thankful for this family. We're thankful for your calling on our lives. We're thankful that we get to live our lives in your service, the King of Kings. We thank you that we serve in a mighty, eternal army, and we know who wins this war. And today, we're deeply thankful for Jesus. We honor his name today and ask that you would enable us to do that over the next few minutes. Lord, teach us how to take what you have deposited in our lives and pass it on to others. 
and give us a vision, a sense of the electric privilege that it is to do that. Catch us up in that this morning, Lord. In the strong name of Christ we pray. Amen. Some of you are want to talk to me to the service because you're afraid <coughs> you'll catch something. Because today we know that diseases are spread through germs. But during the 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries, most scientists believed in the miasmic theory of disease dissemination. They believed that diseases were spread literally through bad air. This is where we get our words like asthma and malaria. They believed that the air was contaminated by particles which were known as miasmas. They believed that the foul air literally smelled bad when it carried diseases. And actually, the discovery of the germs as the basis of the spread of disease has been called by more than one person the most important discovery in human history because it enabled us to stop the spread of devastating illness. And we want to stop the spread of germs, and there are, of course, things that we want to encourage the spread of. There are things that we want to spread, like grass. I'd love for my grass to spread, or civilization, or good ideas. It's also important to know how these things spread, not because we want to stop them, but because we want to encourage them. And the ultimate thing that we want to encourage to spread is the good news that God loves us and has a purpose for our lives. So how do we spread it? How do we spread the good news? Let me review. This is the fourth week in our series that we're calling Spread. And in the first week, we said that That word, our word, evangelism, is a fancy word that means literally just sharing God's great story with others. We suggested that we need to rethink evangelism, rethink the idea of sharing God's love, and we need to think about it as helping people find their emotional and spiritual sweet spot so that their lives are lived with more purpose, more meaning, and more connection to God and others. The second week, we talked about the substance the actual material of God's great story, we looked at an interesting interaction between Jesus and a Pharisee, and in that exchange, we noted four things about God's story. In the substance of what Jesus said with the Pharisee, we noted, first of all, Jesus acknowledged the truth that we hate to admit, but is obvious to most of us, we're a mess. And Jesus went further and suggested we're a mess because of the distance between ourselves and God. Secondly, Jesus said, because we're a mess, we need to be changed. In fact, we've got to become a whole new, different kind of thing. And Jesus said, God is in the change business. The third thing, and this will take us a lifetime to understand, we suggested that the power for our change comes from the death and resurrection of Jesus. And then finally, we noted in that conversation that Jesus made it clear, all of this is available to us. Because God loves us. So, this is a great story and it needs to be told. So how do we tell it? How do we spread God's great story? Well, we're going to look at a really awesome passage this morning that will tell us three things about this spreading process. It will tell us three things about evangelism. We're going to hear the root of evangelism. You know, the foundation and the source of it. How it grows up and what it grows from. Then we're going to learn the importance of evangelism. And finally, we'll look at part of the how of evangelism. So this will be the first part of a two-part series. I made some brief comments last week about the cultural social comments. I think we are at a unique 
cultural moment in our history, and I think it bears us talking about. And I said I was going to revisit those today. We're going to wait a week. I'm going to revisit those next week, so I apologize if you came for that. Next week's lesson, when we get to the second part of how to do this, will be an even more appropriate setting for us to talk about that. Um, But today we're going to do the first part of how we do it. How do we do this? So the root of evangelism, the importance of evangelism, and the how-to of evangelism, or the first part of that. And we're going to look at a letter from one of Jesus' best friends, 1 Peter chapter 2, and we're going to look at verses 9 through 12. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 12. And I want to encourage you, if you have the Bible app, to look up 1 Peter chapter 2, or if you have a Bible with you, to turn with me. 1 Peter is one of the little books at the back of the New Testament. You know, if you get to Acts or Romans, go north. Uh, continue. If you're in one of those Old Testament books like Psalms, go way north. We're way at the back. So 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 12. And again, let's go old school this morning. Let's stand out of reverence for God's Word. Peter has just made an elaborate argument. He's had several Old Testament quotations, and, and he's made an interesting point Quoting from the Old Testament, he said basically, you know, we didn't realize it, but when Jesus came, he was so significant, he was like a rock that became the foundation for this great building, this temple, and you are that temple. What an extraordinary image for these folks. They were living in another part of Europe, having watched Jerusalem be destroyed by the Romans and the temple be destroyed. So you are that temple. Peter says to them, and he also says, you know, Jesus was also a different kind of rock for those who rejected him. He was like a rock that fell on them and a rock that caused them to stumble, but not you. And this is the not you section. So we get to hear something about our identity as people who are connected with God through Christ this morning. First Peter chapter two, verse nine, but you, you are chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, now you're the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you, as aliens and strangers in the world, you're a holy nation, you're a completely different kind of society, a different kind of culture, you're aliens and strangers in the world, I urge you to abstain from sinful desires, which wage war against your soul, and live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, They'll see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. You may be seated. So what's the root of evangelism? What does sharing God's story grow out of? What's the foundation for it? What feeds the spreading process? You know, I'm always tempted to think, just because of my wiring, I'm tempted to think that what evangelism grows out of is more information. You know, if I have more information about God's story or about the beliefs of the person that I'm talking to, that that's really the root of evangelism. But Peter begins in a very different place. Peter says that the root of evangelism is who we are. It's who we are. We are a chosen people. You can ascribe as much intentionality and particularity to that as you want to because I'm convinced 
Peter means it. And so did Jesus when he used this kind of language. And so does God. It is as if God has said, wait, wait, wait. I need Jack and Jamory Hopkins. I choose them. I need them and um, Sterling. There's a new neighborhood that's being developed down here. I need Solon and Kimberly. I choose them. Right down from the theaters in Brambledon, there's a bunch of townhomes with people who are a mess and clueless and they don't know it. I, I need Terry and Eric. I, I choose Terry and Eric. You are a chosen people. And you're a royal priesthood. You're a kingly priesthood. And remember priests for the Old Testament mindset. Priests were the people who represented the people to God and God to the people. You are a kingly priesthood. And you're a holy nation. We're a nation. We are our own culture. We're a society and a holy one. And we've made note before a number of times here at Gateway that this word holy, we said it this morning earlier, this is one of the most important and special biblical words. The idea of holy, we will typically think, is moral purity or perfection, and that's true. But that's really a secondary definition of holiness and an important one. But the primary definition of holiness is different, other than, completely set apart, unique. I've described it like this before. Imagine lining up everything that you can think of in the universe, like you and I and these chairs and the rocks outside and the trees and the homes and the culture that we've built and the ideas that we share with one another and the moon and the air and space and dark matter and Alpha Centauri and vast galaxies spread apart. And put all of those things in one category. And then in another category, write God. And that's the primary definition of holy, unique, set apart, other, wow. And we are a holy nation. We are a people who belong to God. We're His. He's laid claim to us emotionally, spiritually, physically. He has laid claim to us. Look, once that wasn't true. Once we weren't a people. But now we've been assembled. And gateway, we've been assembled. And you'll notice that all of these images which talk about our identity, they're corporate. We as Americans, of course, tend to think of ourselves as individual dots rotating around Jesus or God. But these images, we've been drawn into a corporality. We are a people who belong to God. Once we weren't, but now we are. Once we were not mercy recipients, but now, now we've received mercy. You know, our biggest problem is probably not lack of information or lack of resources. Our biggest problem may be that we forget who we are. So the root of evangelism is who we are. And it's just about being who we are with others. So is this evangelism, is this sharing God's great story, is it really a big deal? I mean, some of us feel like we're not very good at it, and for many of us, this is an intimidating process. So is it really a big deal? Well, interestingly, stuck in the middle of this short discourse about who we are, Peter gives us the answer to this question. And listen to verse 9 again. But you're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You are a people that belong to God. That... And now he gives us the purpose for all of this, the real giddy-up, that 
you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. Our purpose, our reason for being is that we would declare His praises to a waiting and a watching world. It is evangelism, is preeminently important. It's of central importance. I had seminary professor years ago when I was in seminary. This is in 1870. I had a seminary professor who said to us one day in class, he went on this long exposition, we didn't know where he was going, about a little of, after his analysis of you know, the, the Old Testament ideas and Jesus' ideas and the first followers of Jesus, what their concept of heaven was and, and what they thought we would be doing in heaven. And it's really fascinating. Building cities. He was firmly convinced from the beliefs of Jesus that we would be doing work in heaven. We would be celebrating. We would be relating to one another, knowing one another, even recognizing one another. We would live literally outside of time, fully connected with him. We get to hang out with one another forever. You know, what's up, Jan? Haven't seen you for a while. How about if we go over here and build a city and hang out for a thousand years? Have you seen Tom Bellino? No, haven't seen Tom. We spent a hundred years together, you know, a while back, but haven't seen. We get to just hang out and enjoy one another, and we get to hang out with him, see who he is fully acknowledge who He is, be blown away by that, and be able to interact with one another without any defenses, no games, no foils, nothing separating. Fully me, completely alive, completely healthy, fully engaged with fully you, fully in conversation with fully you, for you, trying to meet your need and you meeting my need. How delicious is that there really in the sphere of human activity there's really only one thing that we will not be able to do we will not be able to declare his praises to people who don't have a connection with him because they won't be there so this seminary professor suggested you know i posit that may be why he leaves us on the planet that may be why we're here Remember, everything that God does in us and for us, he does so that we can pass it on to others. I like the way John Piper said it. He said, God made us who we are to show the world who he is. So, how do we do it? Part one. How do we spread God's great story? Let me read verses 11 and 12 again, and I think we'll get it. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world, abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that They might accuse you of doing wrong, but but they'll see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. We spread God's great story first of all as we live good lives. I've capitalized we because the spread of God's story begins and ends with us and people like us. God doesn't have an alternate plan. As we live good lives, people are drawn in. This means, first of all, that we live holy lives. Again, holy meaning completely other and also pure. Peter hits this theme over and over again in this letter. For example, in chapter 1, verse 15, he says to them, just as he who called you is holy, so you be holy in all you do. We evangelize. We share God's great story by living holy lives. This means we guard what we look at. 
This means we guard what we eat. We guard how we carry ourselves in conversations with neighbors and with workmates. We may not laugh at all of the same jokes. We may not enter in. We may not participate in all of the asides that are at their basis we know sexist or racist or impure. We evangelize by holy living. We'll be driven by godly desires and not by sinful desires. And this isn't because sinful desires aren't desirable. They are. This is because sinful desires actually wage war against our souls. In a number of other places, it tells us that the result of this, look, this seems like pleasure right now. This seems like comfort, but I'm telling you, the Bible tells us over and over again, I'm telling you, this ends up in death. This does not serve you. This will not go well for you. Don't do this. Do this right now. A part of this seems tough, and it seems like there's some sacrifices involved, but I'm telling you, in the long run, this gives life. Sinful desires wage war against our souls. Parents, this also means that we guard our children. We guard what they're about. We guard what they're watching as best we can. And I think along with that, there's uh, informing why. I remember uh, when our boys were young, periodically, Diane and I would watch television with our boys, and we'd actually pay attention during the commercials. And we would say, okay, hey, buddy, watch this. All right, what are they trying to sell you? Oh, they're yeah, trying to sell me so-and-so. Yeah, that's right. And what are they using to sell it? I don't know. I can't tell. Like, that pretty girl? Exactly. Does that girl have anything to do with that car? Just training in the culture. Guard your children. This is not because we ought to. And you know... So let's just be honest with one another. You know already, without me telling you, if you're driven by ought to, it ain't working. You're not resisting. This isn't driven by ought to. This is driven by who we are. We are a different kind of people. And he's placed that in us. And so this is you and I getting in touch with who we are, remembering who we are. We evangelize by holy living. The second thing this means is we also evangelize by living lives full of good deeds. Live such good lives among the pagans. Our lives are marked by good deeds. We're the kind of people whose lives are marked by neighborliness and by kindness and by integrity. Seriously, I have the privilege of living in a cul-de-sac with uh, the Cannon family and with Jan Zacharias, and it is a delight to me to look out my window occasionally and see them helping or talking to one of our neighbors. I don't want to have anything to do with it, but it's a delight to me to see them doing it. (laughs) We're generous to waiters and waitresses. That's the kind of people we are. I'm glad none of my children are here this morning. They'd be (laughs) be talking about me. Diane and I have started this thing where we're trying to go out to dinner once a month with our boys who are all living in the area. And the last two times we've been out, they've been giving me a hard time about how I tip waiters and waitresses and I keep saying well in the 1970s it was five percent so what happened (laughs) that doesn't work for them Uh, we're generous to waiters and waitresses we're not cheap we're not demanding to people who serve us that's not who we are we don't exert our power over others we have power you live in the wealthiest county in America on average which makes it the wealthiest county in the history of the world We have power. 
We don't exert that power over others. We live in a completely different kind of way. Some of you have heard me say, I went to visit a church a few years ago in Florida. I was there by myself, and I went up afterwards and uh, spoke to the pastor. He's a pastor of a large church outside of Sarasota, Florida. Spoke to the pastor. Hi, you know, who are you, Ed Allen? I pastor a church in Northern Virginia. Oh, Northern Virginia. I said, yeah, Northern Virginia. He said, oh, I pastored up there for six or seven years, a place called Vienna. You ever heard of Vienna? Yeah, heard of Vienna. Yeah, those people can be really demanding. That's not who we are. We're not that kind of people. In fact, we live such good lives among those around us that they see our goodness, and they're drawn. They're drawn in. It's interesting, isn't it, in this that Peter alludes to two kinds of battles we face when we evangelize. In our efforts to share God's great story with others, we face two pretty fierce battles. One of them is internal, and one of them is external. The internal battle is there are sinful desires which wage war against our soul that keep us from sharing God's great story. And then there is the external battle. We are criticized, but it doesn't matter. We live such good lives that even though there may be criticism, people will see our lives and think, I want to be part of that. Yet through this, we evangelize by persisting in living good lives. And we do this because of who we are, more specifically, who God is making us. Wrap this up by sharing a story. It's probably true. A plane was on its way to London when a blind woman in economy class got up and moved into an open seat in the first class section. Flight attendant saw her do this and politely informed her that she had to sit in economy because that's the ticket uh, she paid for. The blonde replied, I'm blonde and I'm beautiful. I'm going to London and I'm staying right here. After repeated attempts and no success at convincing the woman to move, the attendant went into the cockpit and informed the pilot and co-pilot, my apologies to all blonde women, co-pilot that there was a woman sitting in first class who refused to go back to her proper seat. So the co-pilot went back and explained why she needs to move, but once again the woman replied, I'm blonde and I'm beautiful. I'm going to London and I'm staying right here. The co-pilot returned to the cockpit and suggested that perhaps they should have the arrival gate call the police and have the woman arrested when they land. The pilot said, you say she's blonde? I'll handle this. He went back to the woman and he whispered, something quietly in her ear and she says oh i'm sorry and then quickly gets up and moves back to her seat in the economy section the flight attendant and co-pilot were amazed and they asked him how he'd gotten her to move back to economy without causing any fuss and uh, the pilot said i I told her that first class wasn't going to london so (laughs) yes thank you dylan yes yes We are not like the blonde traveler. We don't consider ourselves the center of the universe. We're not better than others. We don't exert power over others. We live such good lives that others around us, even though they're critical, they see it, and they're going to eventually glorify God on the day He visits. In fact, we testify to the fact that God is the center of the universe. And we do it first and foremost by living holy and good lives. So, do your coworkers think of you as good? I hope you're a great worker. But do they think of you as good? 
Do your neighbors see you as good? That is a good woman. Do they see you as holy? If you're married, do they see your marriage as good, as holy? If not, it may be that we've forgotten who we are. Let's pray.